This is Ashley from GoldenGoddesses.org, and welcome to the October 11th episode of Threshold to Ascension Radio. What if we all take a moment and just center in our hearts and breathe in deep, connecting to the source of all that is, and just letting go of all the energy you may have collected today that's not yours, that's not the light, that's not the truth, and be in that space. Be in that space of being connected into your heart, especially in what's happening in the chaotic 3D illusion around us. It's really valuable to take that time and center back in our heart to stay in the world, but not of it. We talked a little bit about that last week on the Threshold to Ascension show. And thank you for your emails and your comments regarding the topics that I brought up. I do want to mention that the winner from the drawing of the Soul Path Recalibration Session with Carrie Walker is Marielle Broadwell from California. So congratulations, Mary. I'll be sending you off an email so that you and Carrie can connect. And next week, my guest will be the beautiful Tana Newberry from the San Francisco Bay Area. Tana is one of the few women that do UFO sky watching on weekends in the Bay Area. And she's also developed a really powerful star seed and star family oracle deck that helps people that have had experiences to remember or to get clarity. And speaking of having contact experiences, that's just one small part of the bio of my guest, my friend, Randy Kramer. Randy served for 17 years in the U.S. Marine Corps Special Section, which was originally established by President Eisenhower to keep things in check regards to the black ops activities of MJ-12. During Randy's childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood, he was visited by various ETs and military black ops personnel and has a fully recovered memory of his secret life working for the Mars Defense Force, part of the Earth Defense League, a United Nations unacknowledged special access program whose primary function is to protect the Mars Colony Corporation. Yep, people, there is and has been life on Mars for a very long time. Randy has committed himself to sharing the truth about his experiences and how that knowledge assists humanity in reaching its full potential. Randy stands in the light of his truth, doesn't back down, and has been through quite an adventure in this incarnation on the Earth. Randy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Ashley. It's wonderful to be here. It's, there's so much going on right now, and there may be a few gaps in your bio that I kind of, it's so long. Are there any other points about your background that you'd like to make sure the listeners are aware of before we kind of dive into the topics for tonight? Uh, nothing that strikes me as super important that everyone's got to get filled in on for some reason. I mean, I, you, that was mostly complete. I'm happy with that. 
well, good. So, so there's a lot of people that have been coming forward over the past several years. From my personal experience, you were kind of the first um, super soldier, if you want to use that word, and I'll let you say if you use that title for yourself, who began sharing his experiences. How does your journey compare or differ from some of the others that have come forward? Um, sure. Two-part question. So two-part answer. Uh, we tend to not use the term super soldier. We use the term augmented soldier, but it's, it's a, they're interchangeable as far as the general public is concerned. And if people want to um, use that term, it's fine. My personal objection to it is the, it can potentially create this image of uh, augmented soldiers as being not human or not mm. as human as everybody else or that somehow, you know, because we're super, we are supposed to, uh, you know, not have the same type of uh, truly fragile human psyches and human emotional systems that are usually often very badly damaged by, you know, lengthy tours of duties and violent combat theaters. And so I, to me, it's always just really important to really humanize people who have to go through uh, these programs because it's often, you know, the equivalent of going through a meat grinder and a ringer and then a meat grinder and then a ringer and then a meat grinder and a ringer kind of on a regular basis until they spit you out at the end. And the largest majority of people that I speak to uh, are absolutely having the most difficult time trying to sort out that mess. And so I just think that sometimes it's, it's, Sounds like, you know, you're trying to beat your own drum. If you say you're a super soldier, like I'm a super soldier. And it's like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so I don't, I don't care for the term. If people can use it. I'm, I'm okay with it. Just, you know, those are my own personal issues with the use of the term. Uh, but internally, we don't use the term anyway. We say augmented soldier. So, but people are fine to say it that way. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm, you know, trying to mess their hair up for using the term. Well, and I think that's an important distinction, you know, because those of us that haven't walked in your shoes or your Mars boots, um, you know, we hear these terminology out there in the uh, collective. And so having experienced it yourself, you know, you bring that personal um, viewpoint of it. And, you know, you talk about the meat grinder. And one of the things that we spoke about the first time I interviewed you several years ago was the fact that you were injured during your tours of duty and some of the healing processes that you went through. Are you comfortable talking a little bit about that? Oh, no, that, yeah, that's fine. I'm absolutely perfectly comfortable talking about that. Um, and so if you are um, in a position where you get a body part hurt really bad, like a third degree burn, or, you know, you lose a finger or two fingers, or, you know, a part of your arm gets chopped off. Um, there's a really serious trauma that goes with that experience. And, and it is, it tends to stick with you in a really visceral physical way, because you're talking about not just getting hit with a hammer or not just getting cut or stabbed once, which can be traumatizing enough to, but I mean, if you have really serious tissue damage or loss of a limb. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of physical trauma, psychological, emotional trauma that can go with that, especially depending on the sort of raw physical pain of the scenario and or um, fear and terror that might be also happening at the same time. And 
when you talk about the typical sort of maiming and re-maiming of most soldiers in these programs, especially in the MDF, which is just a, a really rough theater to be in. MDF you're talking being about the Mars Defense have, Force. Right, correct. Thank you. Uh, you're talking about people who have, you know, had more than that have had arms and legs blown off, have, you know, had half their face, you know, ripped off or burnt off and, um, you know, lost an eye more than once and, you know, lost arms, legs and had them reattached and regrown and uh, all your tissue regenerated just so that you can go and do it again and again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and I think when I was doing some averaging math um, out of the number of military engagements of which I was probably injured significantly probably over 1500 combat events in which i was hurt badly but and and far more combat events than that total but probably somewhere between a third and a half of those um in which i was seriously injured and so you know that adds up a lot that's really kind of a, a staggering number if someone really wants to stop and think about that um so it's not just having your arm chopped off or burnt off or blown off, but it's having several limbs burnt off, broken off, blasted off, exploded off, ripped off, um, just more than hundreds of times, more than hundreds of times, you know, well over a thousand times. And even to me, to be honest with you, I've that level of trauma incalculable. And, and even in my healing, and pro even in the healing process, I don't know how I would quantify it or qualify it even with numbers because um, you don't get used to something like that. I mean, you, you get a little accustomed to it um, in the sense that you, you stop having fear about it mm -hmm. uh, because once you've had it happen enough time, you're just like, eh, okay, whatever. You know, you don't have any fear or anxiety about it because it's just, it's happened so many times. But your physical body, um, to, in my experience, just doesn't adapt to that level of cellular damage um, by not experiencing trauma from it. And so the recovery, you know, dealing with the amount of physiological trauma just within my residual energy and physical body was as long of a period of time as my tour of duty. So I've often said 20 year tour of duty, 20 year healing process. And I mm. kind of think it's important to let that sink in better than what it does for most people. I think they don't really stop to think about what that really means, especially when I have had a number of comments, questions from especially young people who, again, I think they hear the term super soldier. They hear, you know, fighting on Mars. They think, ooh, that sounds fun and exciting. I'd love to go do that. <laughs> uh, and anyone who ever says that, yeah, anyone who ever, yeah, right, yeah, it's okay to laugh. Anyone who ever says that to me, I, I really often start the conversation by saying, have you listened to a word I've said? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I've said 20-year tour duty, 20-year healing process. So if, if you really are okay, fine with taking you know, 40 years of your life and compartment, compartmentalizing it into a series of nightmarish, traumatizing experiences. And then this, what will be a guarantee, a really grueling, tedious, 
painful journey to try and recover from that. And so many people don't. don't. And, you know, the suicide rates are, are numerically counted, but they're very high. Um, you know, you have even just among, you know, what I would call the regular um, theater of soldiers who served in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you've got these incredibly high numbers for um, suicides. I mean, at the peak of it, and I'm not sure what the numbers are right now, but at the peak, it was about one an hour. So like mm. about 23 per day that were committing suicide that it was being calculated. Um, and that's an incredible amount. That's a, that's a really incredible amount. That's a, a ridiculous amount in the sense that as soon as we start hearing numbers like that, or really when we started hearing numbers like that, there should have been this sort of declaration of public emergency, you know, like, mm. wow, we've got one soldier, you know, one returning veteran per hour, per day, who's deciding that suicide is the best option given how they feel about their experiences and how they feel about their potential recovery from those experiences. Because obviously you have to be in a place where you feel like you're never going to recover, you're never going to get better and that your despair level and your, in some cases, guilt or shame level for things that you've done or things that you've seen or survivor guilt for watching other people get blown up near you and thinking, how come that wasn't me? Why was it that person? And when you lose friends and people who are close, it's super easy to fall into that pattern. And so to really get to the point where you're like, ah, I just can't handle my PTSD. I'm going to kill myself. That takes a level of despair mm. that people really need to wrap their heads around. And if you've got let's let's put this also into perspective you're talking about trained military men and women who are not pansies let me just put it bluntly you know who are tough strong people because of you know what they chose to do we live in a volunteer um you know military situation we don't have a draft which we should but that's another conversation um so those people who end up joining do so by choice they have chosen to do so they have decided you know i am completely capable and ready to step up to the plate and serve my country and do whatever it takes. And those are strong people, strong-minded, strong-willed. And when you crush those people so badly again and again and again and again and expose them to horrors and nightmares again and again and again, that cause them to feel complete and absolute despair, that they feel like they just can't get out of it and the only thing to do is to kill themselves. That's a real problem. That's a real serious problem that we allow that level of stress um, to be heaped upon those people and that we don't respect what we fully understand our United Nations standards for, you know, the number of days, weeks, and months of active, you know, military theater time that soldiers are supposed to see before they're rotated out and not rotated back in. And we used well, yeah, to I think that's that. a, and, that's a huge problem with, um, you know, at least most of us civilians who are looking at the whole concept of of war and the covert programs and a lot yeah. of things that are happening that really aren't in the, the highest and best. Obviously, there are times when defense yeah. is required. Was that the same? Was it a voluntary um, assignment to go into the Mars Defense Force or was there a little bit of a subliminal recruitment? That might not be the right word, but. Oh, no, I, I'll go a step further than that and um, that it was not my choice at all and that from the time that I was, before I was born, really, that the engineering stage of my DNA, uh, I was a military program and a military project and 
my DNA has got a patent on it and somewhere I'm listed as technically as military hardware. So mm. there's this other very complicated conversation about um, soldier slavery. And if you're built from the ground up, that that's what you're supposed to do. Well, there's not and you're trained from, you know, absolutely the earliest possible age conceivable to do such a thing. When it comes time to be deployed, there's no question. I, I had no, I had no question about whether or not I was going, you know, when, mm. when I was deployed, I was, it was more like, a, oh, finally, all of this time and training and energy and effort that I've been spending my entire life up until, you know, the very ripe age of 17 years old was to prepare for this moment right here. So here we go. I'm completely prepared. Let's do it. Let's go. Cause that's what I was bred, trained, engineered for. Um, so, and this brings us to a, a sticky wicket argument uh, as it were, because the command staff of United States Marine Corps special section has sort of this duplicitous problem. Uh, in the position that they're in, which is one, to have a belief and a usually is as empirical and rigorous as possible of a belief on what the best thing to do is, because as a military intelligence organization, we're considered our, our main goals to be incredibly efficient and to be incredibly thoughtful in the best, safest, and most uh, moral and ethical use of monetary resources, human resources, manpower, and um, the way in which we treat our personnel and or train and treat our soldiers is incredibly important to us ethically and morally. So even though I was bred and engineered as essentially a soldier slave, which I don't make a big deal about because I, I at, at this point, I have made a, a number of free will choices to continue to do what I do and be okay with that and to sort my own headspace around that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a problem with it. It doesn't mean that mm -hmm. at some you know, deep level we don't morally and ethically object that this is the path that we're on and this is the place that we are. So certainly my superiors and the team that engineered me and the other people, uh, men and women that were at the time very young boys and girls of Project Moonshadow, was to give us the best tools that we had to both survive, function, and recover, which is pretty unusual for a lot of these programs. So the kids in Project Moonshadow were engineered to self-repair. That was like a really key mechanism. Again, that's not usually the case. So most of the time, uh, most of the people who go through these programs end up being very disposable and are not necessarily treated with respect or not retired into some sort of respect and are often kicked to the curb and or just expected that they're going to self-terminate or kill themselves or something anyway and that that's perfectly fine as far as most of the people are concerned who are in charge because they feel that they have had to cut so many corners for so long that they don't have any choice and to behave this way and to create expendable soldier slaves and treat them that way, which we, again, highly disagree. We think that there is plenty of room to uh, create a niche in our society and our civilization that we always have in which we choose how to treat our military personnel and whether or not we treat them uh, with respect and dignity and whether we make sure that, you know, when they're done with their service, they have every opportunity to continue to serve their society and their civilization and their country and their planet in a way in which is functional and healthy 
Um, and not just to presume that it was because they're done with their military service, that they're done and they're finished and we should therefore discard them. And so well, I know that you of, mentioned that you'll always be a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. I think that's part well, of I'll always that. be an officer. I will always mm-hmm. be an officer. Uh, United States Marine Corps special section officers get life commissions, which is another mm-hmm. little interesting area. Yeah, and that's that's a choice. So, you know, when I was created, that was not a choice. By the time that I got around to my commission, I was definitely, you know, it was a choice. I could have said no, that I didn't want the commission. I didn't want to accept a life commission, which means that I don't ever get to retire ever. I mean, as, unless they want, unless they decide that they are going to start allowing officers to retire. But at this point, no, none of the officers that have served in USMCSS since the beginning have been allowed to retire. Uh, my brigadier then, general was a was an officer in World War II. I will point that out. He was actually an officer in World II, World War II, and advanced technology is keeping him, you know, youthful and healthy and well. But he's well over a hundred years old. And, and this is the brigadier that's on the craft. Uh, not all the time. Uh, okay. He travels around a lot. He, but but that is when I speak when I talk about my brigadier, my brigadier general. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And what do you, from what you're able to share, is that DNA patterning still creating augmented soldiers? Has it expanded, I'm assuming, in technology since you were first um, born? What is your oh, yeah. knowledge and ability to speak on that topic? Yeah, well, I can tell you that when I was engineered and trained, uh, we were in where we would call about the uh, third generation of uh, um, uh, augmented soldiers as far as the technological development on what we would call, say, say major advancements in that field and major landmarks in which there was a standard for in which the way in, uh, augmented soldiers were engineered and created. We were in this area that we would call, you know, the third generation. We're up to currently, like what is what, who and what is being created and trained like this year right now, um, we're up to ninth generation. Mm. So I would just presume to suggest that we have made significant changes and adaptations from third generation to ninth generation. I can't tell you what those are simply because I don't know what those are. I don't Mm -hmm. have the details on exactly what we're doing with our ninth generation soldiers right now, but there continue to be advancement changes as we go through that. Yeah. And just giving a brief overview of some of the beings you encountered when you were on Mars, for those that may have not have heard you talk about this, would you mind describing some of the beings that you encountered in your journey there? Sure, no problem. We primarily engaged with uh, two indigenous species, a indigenous insectoid species and an indigenous reptoid species. And then at some point there was an attempted draconian invasion by Alpha Draconius. And um, then we dealt with you know, draconian invaders at that point. So primarily these three different species. But I would say a majority of that time was spent just dealing with the locals. And so the insectoid species are, they have a, their hive population is um, made up of drones that are about five and a half feet tall. Um, 
I, I know that a lot of people, including my dear, wonderful friend, Simon Parks, refer to them often as mantids, which is mm-hmm. fine. I'm perfectly okay with that. I just have to say that if I was to describe them, they don't necessarily look like mantises. They really look a lot more like, you know, giant ants to me <laughs> that upright walk. Um, <laughs> And so that's, you know, but calling them a mantid species is fine. Calling them an insectoid species is fine. We just, it doesn't necessarily, you know, six of one, half a dozen with the other, really. Um, and were you more on an offensive mission or a defensive mission there? And if it was defensive, what was it that you were protecting? Well, that's a relative uh, question. So mm-hmm. we certainly were told that we were there to protect the colonies, that that was our main job was to defend, you know, the sort of perimeter and territorial boundary lines of the colonies. And these are and human we were colonies. Just, these were human colonies, correct? Correct, correct. correct. Um, and, but truly our primary duty was to test uh, military hardware. So, mm-hmm. We were pretty much on a, what I would say is about a 50-50 defensive-aggressive um, strategy where, you know, half the time we're out looking for trouble and the other half of the time we're, you know, defending our own territory from trouble. But that was just kind of the way in which everybody in that theater behaved um, was this kind of 50-50 combination with the rest of your defense strategy. And in your so, estimation at again, that time... But I think a lot of that was... No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. In your estimate, estimate, <laughs> estimating at that time, how many humans were in the colonies that you were protecting? To give people a scope no of idea. that. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea what the number would have been at that time. Uh, we were told about three years ago when they were doing a uh, census, which was mm-hmm. something that hadn't been done for a very long time. And so the census numbers were coming in right around 10 million total but 10 then million. yeah 10 million total and that's a combination of personnel who have been either voluntarily or involuntarily um, taken from planet earth and taken to the colonies for habitation and a combination of people who've actually been born uh, on the colonies and in the colonies and whose parents have been there in some cases grandparents were colonists before they were so there's a combination of colonists and their progeny who have been there since the early mid-1970s and then a combination of people who keep being added on top of that to freshen up the numbers or add people with genetic distinctions into the pool um, in many cases, the colonies are engaging in uh, eugenic breeding programs. They have these very engineered ideas about society and civilization in ways that we are very loose at the moment here on planet Earth. And so everyone's, you know, got this very, um, you know, you quasi-eugenics futuristic way of thinking about how to engineer and build civil societies in a way that's really controlled and is really thinking about making sure that you're using quote unquote, only the best genetic samples to continue to breed and recreate people and eliminating as many of the negative uh, on 
less than desirable genetic samples. And so it's it's pretty rigid in that way for pretty much all the colonies as I understand them. And the uh, Marines that were, were working there, did were you kept separate from the the colonies itself? Very much or so. Have yeah. A, okay. Yeah. The military bases as I have experienced them are all isolated unto themselves pretty much with very little interactions. You will sometimes cross paths and or join other divisions out in the field um, or as part of joint operations. But for the most part, your division exists within a mountain or an underground facility where, you know, not too many people come to visit and you don't really necessarily go visiting other places. So everyone is fairly assigned to their particular area, their particular compartmentalization and pretty much stays within that compartmentalization for their tour. Did you have an awareness of the people that were living or born in the colonies? Were they also living in the mountains or underground? Was there a biosphere? No, we're, that not no, we're near us. no we no, never we're had. Yeah, we had absolutely zero mm. contact with the colony. Right. Well, with the exception of the occasional uh, visit or trip to Ares Primus to sort of, ed, you know, military headquarters, which mm-hmm. I guess is also, you know, the seat uh, of um, collective government. So the colonies have their own individual governor, uh, governors and their own governing states. They're like little, you know, Greek nation states in the sense that they're all very separate and each one is has a very different system of laws, codifications and uh, processes and protocols which they follow that have to do with who formed uh, the basis for that colony. For example, Um, Some people have mistakenly thought that all of these colonies are primarily created and, you know, made up of citizens from the United States of America, which is not true, Mm -hmm. Uh, um, that they're actually divided up in that sense. So there is a colony which is uh, a U.S. colony. There is a colony which is a... What used to be, when it started out as a colony, it was not a Russian colony, it was a Soviet colony because the Soviet Union was in power at that time and it has since changed hands to be a Russian colony. Uh, there is a colony of Neuschwabenlanders, who, those people who do not understand the Neuschwabenlanders, Neuschwabenlanders are the members of the Nazi party that moved to their secret base in Antarctica, which was a geographical location that had been carved out on the map called New Schwabenland. And then when they were, when World War II actually ended, which was not with the armistice, but several years later, when we kind of, everyone fought to a standstill and we decided that it was time to just go ahead and make peace with the New Schwabenlanders and give them a seat in the United Nations. Again, a covert one that was not, you know, known to the general public, but gave them an opportunity to sit in the UN and be part of the larger covert military space program, which is a little weird sometimes for all of us, believe me, that we mm. have this faction, which is a, a, a completely legally sanctioned and accepted Nazi nation state uh, that continues to be a part of the overall program, which can be problematic just in and of itself, but can also just be very problematic for people who feel like we were supposed to have won that war in World War II and there weren't supposed to be any more Nazis and we were supposed to have done away with them as a 
as, as an entire uh, system, but no. So one of the colonies is run by them, and they use a lot of slave labor, for instance. And they're not doing very well economically. A lot of the colonies aren't doing very well economically at this point. But a few years ago that uh, was the worker uprising. And so the worker uprising changed everything. There was a number of ex- uh, explosions of factories and power facilities and some of the train systems that were going from place to place and colony to colony were destroyed. And uh, there was this really deliberate uh, blackout and cloaking of information, you know, both visually and energetically, so that we're having a very difficult time seeing what's going on there. And so there's just an, there's continues to be an ongoing worker rebellion. That's really all I can say about that because there's not much more that, um, you know, we know for sure about that. We know that it's, you know, been divided up into probably no less than four or five distinct factions um, and that they're continuing to you know, wrestle it out and shoot it out. And in some cases continue to, uh, manufacture, uh, much of the materials that they had already been in given the duty of being in charge of manufacturing for so that instead of being under larger umbrella of the corporate conglomerate and then via the colonies underneath them, some of these entities have been able to make arrangements directly with the ICC in order to continue trade agreements because the ICC can't necessarily have those trade agreements interrupted. And so it's they're in this very interesting position right now of not really having a much of a preference over sort of how it works out. So in the sense that they are both financially operating with the official legal apparatuses of the colony corporations, as well as in some cases, uh, uh, rogue operations, um, worker rebellions or civil rebellions, which are also, you know, have, have temporary um, government and political structures within those colonies that are, it's essentially been shattered up in a number of directions and it's, it's still sorting itself out and we don't necessarily expect that it's going to just, the dust is going to settle on that anytime soon. It's going to continue to probably pound away until people are satisfied with, uh, getting all their aggressions out for being lied to about being told that there's mm. no more planet earth and you know, you're lucky to be here and quit your complaining and eat your gruel and, um, you know, kind of, you know, it's really like some been really, really piss poor uh, treatment of the worker populations and um, really horrible conditions, to be honest with you, for some of them. So just like, you know, pretty much every uh, worker rebellion or slave rebellion that has ever started throughout history, it's because, you know, you treat people so crappy that eventually they get really fed up with it. And they fight mm. back. It's so, interesting you know, to know it's another experiment that... Uh, hasn't seemed to quite understand what true humanity and compassion is about. In fact, quite the opposite. So I'm guessing that ICC is either International or Intergalactic Colony Corporation. Is that? It's the International Corporate Conglomerate stands for. Yeah, International Corporate Conglomerate. They're a consortium of banking and economic entities uh, on planet Earth that have expanded their financial uh, business dealings throughout the solar system. So mm. Mars falls under that umbrella. As- some asteroid mining falls under that umbrella. Some of the other colonies throughout the solar system, which 
there are not just colonies on Mars. There are a few other colonies around the solar system that are, um, you know, also having a, a, an interesting rough time of trying to deal with their environmental conditions in order to try and mine uh, and or collect water and, and or ice and or manufacture and or some form of, of profit and loss uh, system in which they're trying to create a profit so that the larger uh, organizations, the larger ICC can continue to have these profitable arms all around the solar system so that we you know, expand our reach within our own territory as well as what I'm to understand are some colonies that we have stretched outside of the solar system. We have some colonies and star systems across the galaxy right now. Like I think no less than six or seven of them from the last map that I looked at that showed that we looked like we had bases and colonies in at least six or seven other star systems across the galaxy. So we're, we're expanding uh, quite a bit farther than just our solar system as well. Right. We're going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back, I'd like to talk about that uh, meeting you talk about on the craft with the different uh, beings or races. I'm going to use that word and how the communication happened and how that moves into a little bit of what you're teaching now with the psionics. So we're going to take a quick 30 second break and we'll be right back. Oh, fabulous. I'm Chief Joseph, and I'd like to talk with you about a product called Stop Itch. It's an all-natural product that stops itching and scratching instantly. From all types of rashes, including eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, poison oak, all bug bites, and it's safe for kids and babies of all ages, and for a limited time, it's half off at www.theskingod.com or 888-391-5432. Thank you. I'm Chief Joseph, and I'd like to talk with you about a product called Stop Itch. It's an all-natural product that stops itching and scratching instantly. From all types of rashes, including eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, poison oak, all bug bites, and it's safe for kids and babies of all ages, and for a limited time, it's half off at www.theskingod.com or 888-391-5432. Thank you. So we're back. A um, little technical glitch. It got played twice, but that's okay. <laughs> so obviously, Randy, you know, in, in what you've been sharing for the listeners, that can all be quite fascinating and yet depressing um, with understanding that the figureheads, it sounds like from what you said, behind this treatment of the slave workers on, on these colonies are actually human. Um, I think oftentimes people try to say, you know, it's reptilian or it's Draco or it's this, but yeah. you know, it is actually humans that are perpetuating this onto each other. But there's also some beautiful things. I'm going to use the word beautiful that you've yeah, talked no, about. I, how, how I think some you should. The, you yeah, should use that word. How some of the other um, star nations, um, you know, introduce their offspring um, to the psionics, which you are now really sharing those teachings on. So would you talk a little bit about that meeting on the craft that, that I love your story of, and then how that's developed into what you're now doing with the public? I would be happy to. So I believe you're talking about some of my experiences that I've had aboard the intergalactic space station that orbits Jupiter. Mm -hmm. 
So um, the space station, as I have described on numerous occasions, but for those who have not heard me describe, is um, as a, what we'll call a main floor. Main floor is easily um, a half a mile to you know, three quarters, maybe more from end to end. It's quite large. When you're standing at one end of it, it's, it's kind of difficult to see you know, the other end is far enough away. I mean, you can, you can see what's happening at the other end, but it's very far away. Um, it is a room that is 360 degrees around with, I often say glass, but stipulate, I don't know what they're made out of. So I'm, I'm not going to presume that they're just, you know, a silicon crystal matrix of glass, but they are windows nonetheless of something that is, uh, probably incredibly strong and, and you know a really great clear image through that are floor to ceiling and the floor to ceiling has got to be you know close to 80 feet uh probably mm. from floor to ceiling it's, it's a big room and um that room at any given time has no less than hundreds of meetings that are taking place um, inside of it. And those meetings take place in what we simply refer to as a conversational environment. And a conversational environment is whatever environment is required for different species to sit down and have a chat with. And so sometimes that is as simple as a table and chairs. Uh, I should stipulate before I get started, uh, everything in this room is constructed out of holographic uh, projections or hard light projections. So it's uh, pretty holodeck-ish in the sense that, you know, the operators of this room can create a table of chairs, a large table for someone who's very tall, a smaller table for someone who's much mm -hmm. smaller, or a cube environment that has a different gas or a liquid, if that's what someone has to have to breathe or to habitate in. Uh, you know, that's adjoining a table or two different cubes that are housing two different liquid environments for people to breathe into. Uh, sometimes the species will come into that environment wearing an environment suit uh, so they can interact sort of with it where everyone else is, which the main room is a oxygen-nitrogen mix. And it, so it kind of turns out that the oxygen-nitrogen-carbon dioxide mix is um, fairly prevalent, actually. And so there are a number of species that breathe oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide mix. And it's, it's uh, oddly enough, just more common than, you know, some people might presume. And so the main uh, gaseous environment of the room is a oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide mix, uh, but they can create any environment any environment whatsoever to communicate with. Now, depending on the both psionic sophistication and or language differences of the species present, there can be a number of ways in which they communicate. There is a uh, computer translator or an electronic translator, which can essentially, again, very Star Trek-y. You know, one person talks, the translator translates uh, the other side talks, the translator translates, but that's all done by, you know, essentially a computer a machine, a very advanced machine. You also have, in some cases, uh, translators who speak both languages and will literally perform what, you know, we would consider 
here on earth a pretty standard you know language to language translation you also have the possibility of having a uh, psionically assisted conversation so in that case there's a little halo a little like a little metal halo that everyone sticks on their head and that amplifies and connects the sort of psionic field so that everyone can communicate via a psionic network a localized psionic network via this little halo that you wear in your head um, or you can have a translator who is translating using psionics, who is using mental communication, telepathic communication, to then translate to back and forth between species, uh, either via language or psionic. Um, so you have about as many possible ways in which to communicate as there are variations in which to communicate, because not everybody wants to communicate the same way. Not everybody trusts the same information being transmitted the same way. So sometimes species can communicate psionically, but they distrust that form of communication for a treaty negotiation. They still think that uh, there should be more things more specifically hammered out that have to be uh, codified in words and letters and sentences and paragraphs and so forth in a way that is not the same as a psionic communication. So it really depends on a lot of factors on how different species will communicate but that room is set up to facilitate any communication between any two species who wish to meet there and have a, have a meeting and that's happening 24 7 365 as far as earth time is considered that there are meetings there happening all the time and there are species present in that room all the time and they vary in size uh you know the probably the smallest species that I ever personally saw was maybe 16, 18 inches, you know, tall, pretty small by our standards. Uh, but the largest species I've ever seen in that room was easily 60, 65 feet tall and almost, you know, stood to the ceiling. So what would you describe that, that, that 60 foot tall being looking, looking like, how would you describe that being with um, I, I would actually describe them as being incredibly humanoid, meaning they mm -hmm. had humanoid features that looked like very much, not exactly, but very much like, you know, human beings here on planet Earth like, look like, but much taller and much bigger and um, with a different skin tone. Mm. So we have about 10 minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure that we talk about your book and we talk about the psionics courses that you've been teaching. Um, and I right. want to tie that into the, the importance of having the psionics ability for more humans because of the, the powers that we're using invasion as a threat. So um, where right. would you like to pick up from there? Um, well, let's see. We'll just talk about the class. Um, so I have been starting to teach again this class on psionics, which we have been calling the laws of psionics, psionic self-defense and military psionic protocols. That might be a little wordy and we might be coming up with something <laughs> that's a bit small, that's a bit shorter than that. That's what we'll call the title of the class of work in progress. But the, the class itself is uh, becoming a pretty clear curriculum for me when I teach it, which is you know, what material I'm trying to cover from front to back in the amount of time that we have, which we're deciding right now to cram into two long weekend days so that, you know, um, more people can attend. We were having some issues with people not being able to attend when we stretched it out over a three-day span, but I was trying to do, you know, sort of not as lengthy, mentally exhausting uh, 
sessions mm. per day. And I, we've decided that in order to accommodate more people and to cram it into a two day period, we're just, it's just going to be two pretty long days, uh, in order to do that. So, but it's only two days too. It's only a weekend. And, uh, we have been teaching it here in Yelm, Washington at the moment, which is, um, where I'm calling home these days. Mm. And, uh, which is lovely for lots of reasons, but, um, mm. So that's and we're with the intention uh, and communication with some people about taking it around. I have a friend and a colleague who is putting together a uh, situation to teach a class down in Oregon, and you know I'm communicating with people who are talking about wanting to do the class in various places uh in the western part of the country which is kind of just where i'm hanging out at the moment I, I i know some people want me to travel farther and i'm just um not doing it unless it's for a really really good reason it's just it's it's an awful uh long and pain in the butt way for me right now to try and travel to the east coast to teach a class mm -hmm. it, would, it would have to be and especially since purposefully keeping the student size to each class down like i really between 20 and 25 students is the max that we will accept for a class. And if it's more than that, then we'll, you know, schedule another class. Um, and the basic teachings are the intention for the psionics class. So the people that aren't quite familiar with what psionics is, what would you like to share for the listeners? Sure. Uh, so uh, psi is the Greek psi, P-S-I, which uh, means mind. And onic is a... Um, suffix that means waves and so it is literally the scientific word for mind waves the waves that are from your minds from your thoughts uh and your emotions which is what psionics are so some people like to use that other ps word that we don't like to use because we think it has a lot of baggage with it we've talked about you and i have certainly talked about that um and we're we are doing our best to change the lexicon there we would like people to you know take this as a serious understanding that there is science behind this there are physical laws and mathematical principle principles which govern its behavior and there are tools and techniques which go back to time immemorial and uh many of those tools and techniques are specific to the mystery school and or school of thought and or school of mind body discipline of that time and that era that is passed down from generation to generation but pretty much all of those schools of thought and practice and metaphysical spiritual development can be broken down into fundamentals, again, that we think are a basic across board. And so my goal is to teach from the United States Marine Corps Special Section Psionics Manual, which, which is an attempt by other people much smarter than me to take all of that information and distill it down into something that is as straightforward and comprehensible and duplicatable by his maximum number of personnel possible. And so um, we would like to believe uh, that we've done a pretty good job of simplifying some tools and principles down so that in a pretty short period of time, I can hand a basic tool set to people who, once they understand the basic principles and how variable operating system uh, is once you understand the basic principles that you can build upon those basic principles into really whatever you want your uh, whatever operating system someone chooses to believe in or be a part of or create as long as it's uh, with a healthy understanding of what the fundamentals are 
you can pretty much, you know, create what you want to out of that. And so we like to think that it's an incredibly versatile way of explaining uh, how psionics work and how people can apply them into their daily life. And the main thing that I teach and have to convey to people is whatever techniques that you want to absorb or practice, the main thing is that you practice it every day, that you do something which is a part of the mental, uh, metaphysical, spiritual, mind, body discipline every day, because that's the only way that you have integration and growth of these tools and these techniques. And so um, that's really the number one thing that people who want to develop their minds and want to develop their abilities have to understand that I can teach you something in two days, I can teach you a lot in two days, but what you're going to have to do with that on a daily basis for you know the rest of your life if you want to develop into something more evolved and more uh, capable, powerful than what you are right this minute, um, then it takes diligence. And we just believe that the primary defense, primary attack and defense that people are sort of under is of the mind. And when you can defend and protect your own mind and your own sovereignty as a being, then you become less vulnerable to the external forms of attack that exist. And so we think that there really isn't a, a switch that we can flip that puts a big shield up for everybody. It's really up to everybody as individuals to learn to develop their own psionic shielding and employ it and make it work. Well, that's important, you know, with standing and that empowerment and that sovereignty. And for those that are very empathic, that are, you know, being aware of the AI and the mind control and, and the programming that's being done. This, this psionics is a very powerful tool. We have about two minutes left, Randy, and I, and I want to make sure that we don't leave your book out. And I know it's still, you know, the, the final I's are being dotted and T's are being crossed. Right. But can you talk a little bit about the book? If you have an idea of when it's coming out, I know the title is still under wraps. And then quickly yes. at the end of that, mention your website so that we get all that in before we have to end tonight. Sure, I'll actually do that in reverse order. My website is www.earthcitizenconsulting.org, where Earth Citizen Consulting is all one word. Uh, I am doing my best to keep my web guy informed of what's going on so that all of that is updated. And if people keep keep a little their eye on that, they will get the updates as soon as we have them. So uh, the book is volume one of a what is going to be three volumes of my personal memoirs, and this. The first volume is pretty much going to be my experiences while I was in the MDF on Mars. So everyone who's been dying to read about that or have me write that, I've finally done it. And we are just – there is no published date or estimated published date because we're just at that very, very final stage where depending on how quickly I you know, organize myself <laughs> to make sure that it gets done <laughs> – is how soon it will get done. And then when we, once we sort of have the print set and we know what it's going to cost to do our first publishing and, you know, just start doing all the things that we have to do to put those final steps together and actually getting to a done set of, of printed out books. I can't say other than I just keep shooting for it to be as soon as possible. I keep saying I want that to be, you know, in divine um, timing. <laughs> week, Are you going to be shooting at any not conferences? Months from now is what I'm hoping Perfect. for. Uh, um, yes, uh, you, okay. I, yes, I actually am. Uh, the weekend of the 26th of this month in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I will be at the, uh, what is it, uh, Gateway to the Gateway to yep. the Cosmos, I think is what we're calling, is right. what it's being right. called. Uh, 
in so Albuquerque. Randy, we got thir- we got thirty seconds. And I just so, yeah. want to invite the listeners to send any questions to me that you may have for Randy. Randy, I'm going to send you an email. We're going to do you and I a, a Skype chat to follow up on some of the questions we didn't get to ask and we'll put that up on the youtube channel we're going to have to sign off now randy thank you so much for all you do and for being with us listeners stay in your heart and keep shining your light because we need that on the planet aloha my randy, pleasure and thank, you. thank you my pleasure and you i will be happy to come back anytime mm-hmm.